You know a dream is like a river, ever changing as it flows. And a dream is just a vessel that must follow where it goes. Trying to learn from what's behind and never knowing what's in store makes each day a constant battle just to stay between the shore. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am Maxwell Ivy, known around the world as The Blind Blogger. And I'm bringing you another one of my conversations from the Mobility Matters 2022 conference. And just like any other episode of What's Your Excuse, my my goal is to help you to overcome the excuses that are holding you back. And in this case, the conference, the entire week of the conference was about uh, inclusive, inclusion, universal design, really addressing the needs of everyone, whether that be people with disabilities people with gender issues, environmentalism. So it's a great conference. I hope that y'all will check out the conference. I will put the website in the show description, but I hope y'all will check out the conference and consider purchasing a download or subscribing to their email list so you can be sure to know what's going on for the next conference or for any of the other programs they're offering at Portland State University. So uh, you can find the podcast at theblindblogger.net. You can also find it on the uh, at, at wyexcuse.com along with the other shows on the What's Your Excuse Network that are dedicated to people with disabilities, either the people, either hosts or uh, people who just want to draw attention to the lives and struggles of people with disabilities. So I hope you check it out at wyexcuse.com. So today I'm going to be speaking with the organizer of Mobility Matters 2022 which this is the fifth year of their conference, uh, and it is done by Portland State University Department of of Education, Special Education. So I'm going to speak with Amy Parker, and she is the daughter of a minister, and her mother was a sign language interpreter and a teacher for the deaf. She grew up with an older sister who was a year and a half older than her who had multiple disabilities, which one of them was vision loss or vision visual disability. Uh, she eventually attended university, going on to get her doctorate from Texas Tech University in the area of education and special education and focusing on orientation and mobility. She was in Oregon as part of a national conference on, dis- on deaf blindness and was approached by the people at Portland State to help them start their new program to teach orientation mobility. And she is an associate professor at Portland State and also the coordinator of the program. So Amy, I just want to thank you so much and welcome to What's Your Excuse slash Mobility Matters. Max, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for the promotion. I'm not yet an associate professor, my friend, but I'm working on it. (laughs) I'm an assistant professor, but thank you so much for that warm welcome. I appreciate it. Well, well, you're welcome, and quite often I say things on here that aren't true at the time, but they come true <laughs> later, so we'll just keep our fingers crossed. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So um, I didn't realize this until I was doing, you know, until you were helping me get ready to do my introduction, that we have something pretty important in common. Um, actually, it's maybe not completely in common, because I think we're on different sides of the thing. 
you have an older sister, a year and a half older than you, who had multiple dis- has multiple disabilities. Yes. I have a younger brother, a year and a half younger than me, who has no disability. So I'm kind of like on the other side of that <laughs> coin. And I, I don't know about you, but in my lifetime, I, there were there were more than a few occasions where there was some some strain beyond the usual disagreement between brothers because he had to kind of look after his older brother. Mm-hmm. Yes, my sister can definitely put me in my place. <laughs> One of her favorite things to say to me is that she is older than me and that she was born first. And she usually, she, she says that almost every conversation that we have, Max. So she, <laughs> that she's number one and I'm number two and never to forget that. Okay. Um, we also have two younger brothers. I should say, I didn't tell you that two, two boys and two girls, the girls were born first and then the boys. Yeah. Well, that must've been, you know, something for the parents because when the two girls come along at about the same age, uh, parents have to compete against them as a team. And then later on, you had two <laughs> brothers who came along at about the same time. So I don't envy your parents. I'm, I mean, they were saints. They were saints and they are, <laughs> they are with Lord. They're with the good Lord now, but yes, I think of them every day and they, they were wonderful parents. Yes. Right, so, so why don't you, if it's okay with you, would you talk a little bit about uh, growing up in this family? Because I think it's where you really learned the, the value of inclusion. Uh, absolutely, Max. Thank you so much. It, it, um, you know, my parents, it was back before, um, Melody started going to school right about the time that IDEA was passed into law. Um, so she was allowed to go to school. I think before certain times, certainly children with multiple disabilities, they didn't have to be allowed to go to school or they would go to very special programs. But when IDEA past, um, schooling opened up. My parents were both educators. Mama did teach. Uh, she became fascinated with um, supporting individuals who are deaf and hard of hearing. She knew sign language. Um, she was a teacher. She, she taught English, but then she also taught children who were deaf and hard of hearing. Um, and she was a, a, a sign language interpreter, although it was more of a that was more informal. Anyway, they, my parents just modeled um, the value of every single person, every single person being included, being a part of something, enjoying life. And, and they, I think they just kind of unconsciously taught, taught me that through, through Melody um, and their interactions with her um, and their work just with the community, you know, with the church community. And um yeah, I think I learned So there's there's one example, Max, I, th- I think I was sharing this with you, excuse me. <clears throat> one of the family vacations that we took was to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. And, you know, that has a there's a vast underground subterranean cave system that's that's exploring and it's it was a family vacation. But Melody used a wheelchair. She still uses a wheelchair. My parents couldn't carry her through some of those caves that were, you know, that involved bending and stooping and were much more uh, intricate. So they chose to go to the accessible cave. And that's where we all went as a family. And I think unconsciously that just it spoke volumes to me. It was never a question that Melody would not go with us or that she would stay behind with someone else. 
that she was, you know, a part of our, our family and firstborn, as she tells everybody meets her. And, uh, yeah, that I think that just her mobility, her going to school, her, um, it, and she did ride on a special bus where a lift would pick her up and, 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 you know, take her to school. It was kind of weird because she took a different bus than I did. You know, I got to ride on the big bus and Melody rode on this little bus to school, but I just started thinking about mobility um, by seeing both, both what my parents did, but also what was possible for people with disabilities to be a part of everything, to go everywhere, that it should never, ever be a question of if someone can um, do things that interest them. Yeah. Well, I would say that my dad was pretty good at it. me. The, the the few times I can remember not doing something, it was usually more because of my size than my vision. Because, like, for example, I would never have went where they had caves like that because I've always been a big person. At one time, I was, you know, clinically obese. And so I've, I've had gastric surgery and I've changed my life a lot. But you know, in my teen years, I was six over six foot and over 350. So not a good recipe for for walking around in caves. Uh, it, it also meant that I didn't do roller coasters or, or, or theme park attractions or that sort of thing. So, but it is important that your, that your parents uh, really just, it was like, the, the, it was like they w- didn't even have to think about it to include your sister. They were just both very, very open. So, you know, of course, being a minister's daughter, we were at church uh, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday, and and Melody w- was always right there with us, you know. And um, there was a, this is something, I've, I really haven't talked about this much, but, um, you know, in, in our faith, the way we grew up, children at a certain age choose to be baptized. They don't um, that they make a decision about that. And well, I remember this because Melody does have intellectual disabilities. Um, when she chose to be baptized, there were some people in the church that actually, they weren't, they weren't ugly about it or anything, but they just, they wondered about Melody choosing that. And it, again, it impressed, it was very much impressed upon me that that was never a question in my my dad's mind, you know, right. it was like she made a choice and it was just like anything else that a person who could go to church would do. But like some people thought because of her intellectual disabilities, she wouldn't, you know, she just wouldn't need to do that. But right. it was never a, a question in my parents' mind. Right. And and that kind of reminds me of a story I read about Helen Keller that in the 30s or 40s, when she started advocating for the rights of workers, that there were people who didn't feel like that she had the the wherewithal to come to those conclusions on her own and that she must be being directed by Ann Sullivan. You know what? That is so interesting, Max. I started re-listening to the story of my life, and I know that some people have really, they've thought that about Helen that she wasn't, you know, capable of writing something like that or advocating or traveling the world as she did and speaking up about rights, but she was, you know, 
and it's it's usually people's attitude towards others with disabilities that's the real problem that's the real challenge it's not that the person can't do certain you know it's like we all do certain things and and like you said there may be reasons why someone's not engaging in something it may not be their interest they may have other challenges they you know it's just not their thing to participate in sports or whatever it is but they, it's usually it's the the societal or the group's view of something that's the real problem that's the barrier that is really true it's also true that in a lot of cases it's a it's a it's a, a block in the in the mind or the esteem of the person with the disability that prevents them from considering certain activities. Right. And maybe that's been unconsciously reflected to them in some way, but, you know, and I think all human beings have that. We all have doubts about ourselves or we think, well, there's no way I can do that. I'm too old or I'm too heavy or I'm too this or I'm too that, you know, um, as someone who has struggled with weight also, Max, I'm, I'm very touched by what you shared. I, it's, I have to push myself not to, not to overeat and to, and to stay healthy. So, but yes, we all say those things to ourselves, but I think for people with disabilities, more is reflected towards them from other people's attitudes about what they can and cannot do and the presumptions that are made, like, about them, about their choices, about their interests. And, and I'm, I'm not currently a person with a disability. I have other challenges, but I think I, I think of myself as an ally. And because I'm Melody's sister, you know, I, I grew up with just having, having her be my teacher, you know, as well as my parents. Well, I love that expression, having her be your teacher. Um, I, this really wasn't on my agenda today, but you mentioned, you used the word uh, ally, and I personally wish we could come up with a better word for that, because to me, when I think ally, I'm thinking confrontation or battlefield, or I have to win and you have to lose. I mean, it's, it's, I know that's not the the reaction everybody has to that word, but it's just one of those that's like, Man, I wish we could, but then there are a lot of words we use in the, in the language of disability that I wish there were better words for. I guess I'm using that word and I'm glad you brought it up, you know, of the disability movement. Um, you know, sometimes people with disabilities might rightly even challenge um, someone without a disability being a, being a leader in the field or speaking up on, on their behalf. Um, and I think I use that word ally because um, the disability rights movement, which is led by people with disabilities, there were several people in that movement who also didn't have disabilities, but who believed in inclusion, who believed in uh, leadership of people with disabilities who really wanted to support access at every level of society and the environment. And so that word sometimes gets chosen by people who aren't disabled, but who really believe in um, 
that societal change and that attitude change and that barrier reduction and removal in the planning process. So that's kind of, yeah, you're right. It sometimes can sound like a battlefield and it's, it shouldn't be perceived necessarily as a win-lose. I, maybe it's more like a coworker or a collaborator or a friend. I don't know what, whatever word you choose, but so Annie Sullivan, going back to our friend, Helen, she was a teacher. And that's what Helen called her. She said, the day the teacher came to me, you know, and um, Annie also had a disability herself in, in having low vision, but she right. was certainly a friend to, to Helen. You know, it just occurred to me, I, I was watching an episode of NCIS this past week, and I have yet to read the Fred Rogers book or watch the movie. And in there, it mentions that good that Fred Rogers told people to look for the good helpers. And so now I know I have to read his book. And I think maybe that's the word I'm going to settle on. I still got to think about it. But that's really not central what we're talking about. So you, it seems to me like you were pretty much uh, groomed from birth to do what you're doing now. I mean, so can you tell me a little bit about how this process went of starting the mobility orientation and mobility program at Portland State at which I think their website is psu.com or .edu, excuse me. Uh, talk a little bit about some of the challenges y'all had getting that program going and then also how y'all would have adapted to COVID. Sure, sure. So um, actually a grant was written by Dr. Holly Lawson. Holly is my colleague at Portland State and she teaches and leads the teacher of the visually impaired program, which has been at Portland State since the 60s. 1964, it's one of the first um, teacher of the visually impaired programs in the United States uh, at Portland State. Um, and Holly wrote a grant with um, a lady named Catherine Botsford, Dr. Catherine Botsford, to the U.S. Department of Education. A lot of people wanted an orientation and mobility program here. And then Catherine decided to move on to other professional things, other professional callings, and they needed someone to come in because they got the grant and they needed someone to come in and help grow the program. So what's funny is Holly and I actually were a part of a special training program back when we were both getting our doctorates. She was at the University of Arizona and I was at Texas Tech, but we knew of each other. There's a whole cohort of um, students, doctoral students that were prepared at the same time, also with federal funding uh, to really grow leaders in the field. And um, when Catherine decided, you know, to move on to other professional things, Holly um, reached out to me. And I, um, I really like Portland. I like Oregon. I knew my family, I had been working at the National Center on Deaf Blindness, but my family was really happy in Oregon. We wanted to stay um, in the area. And so, um, I, I took her up on that. I had gotten my orientation and mobility training at Texas tech university, um, with Dr. Nora Griffin Shirley and love that she's quite a character and a leader in the field. Um, and, and so that's how it, that's how it started. And some of the challenges Max have been, you know, anytime you start a new program, our programs are not easy to sustain and grow because um, there aren't large numbers of people who actually want to be in the field. 
And it's hard for people financially to commit to higher education. You know, it's expensive. And um, many people think that our students are going to be, you know, they're fresh uh, undergraduates, maybe in their 20s. Actually, many of our students are are my age or older, so they may be in their 50s. Some of them are in their 40s, a few in their 30s, but they're usually folks who have been in another field and maybe in another role in education and who come back. But anyway, um, Mobility Matters started with this grant. We had, um, Holly had written in a man named uh, Robert Wall Emerson, Dr. Wall Emerson, who works at Western Michigan University. They are they have one of the oldest orientation and mobility programs in the United States, and they have a very well-established program. And so since we were just starting, um, she wrote him into the grant to be an evaluator. And what he really became to me was like a coach to help with this program. And so when he was coming out, you know, we were bringing him out. This was our first year of starting the program. I had my first group of students going through. It wasn't that long ago. This was like 2017, 2018. And I said, wow, Holly, you know, we have this, this big guru, this leader in the field in orientation and mobility coming here. Why don't we have a small conference and invite people to come and hear him speak? And she said, yes. And Portland State has this Transportation Research and Education Center, which is funded by the U.S. Department of Transportation. And so we, Rob was willing. Rob said, sure, I'll be on a stage while I come out and talk to you guys, you know, and have these meetings that we were going to have about the grant. And so we invited folks and we worked with the Transportation Research and Education Center and said, let's, let's call this Mobility Matters. And so in 2018, in March, we had our first Mobility Matters. And I think about 100 people came. We had it in a wow. room on campus. And folks said, you know what? Well, they brought together these two different groups of people, transportation folks and orientation and mobility specialists and educators, and said, we're never together in the same room. You know, yes. we, don't, we don't have the same kind of conferences. So this is really different. And it's kind of interdisciplinary. Um, so folks said, yeah, this is a good idea. And so then we just started having it every year. Yeah, I, I think that is one of the real problems is that if you like, just for example, say you're a speaker and all the events you look at are going to be events that are tailored to your particular industry or field within that industry. You hardly ever see events that bring together two groups that on the surface would not consider themselves to have similar interests. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and sometimes it can be intimidating, right. To, at least for me to, to speak with engineers, you know, I don't have their, not their body of knowledge. I don't know sometimes the language that they're using or the vocabulary, um, but they have a real interest in design and, in, and and they really don't know our community. And more than that, they don't they don't maybe consider some of the problems of the community because they haven't they haven't observed that. They haven't so they're designing for a particular type of person and maybe it never occurred to them, like for my sister Melody, that somebody might need 
this kind of space. And of course, there's the Americans with Disabilities Act. The ADA has done a lot to really make engineers and urban planners and designers much more aware of the whole um, community, but there's still not a lot of conferences where two different groups, three different groups really come together to share that information together. Right. And, you know, I know that most people that are watching this don't know this, but when y'all put on a first ever conference and, and y'all have a hundred people show up, I mean, that is just so impressive because I have, I have, I have seen organizers who are depressed and considering getting out of their field because only 12 people showed up or something, you know, it's a, it was a major accomplishment for y'all's first year and to see y'all continuing to do it. Cause it's not easy putting on these conferences, uh, even without COVID. Exactly. And, and so that's what hit us in 2020 that mobility matters has been an on-campus conference where we've, you know, fed people and brought them together in the same space, which has a lot of value just being together in the same room and, we even did some walkabout activities where we walked around on campus and in the community and had conversations about different apps. We, we called them walkabouts or, you know, walking around campus to look at things together and have discussions about what was, what was going on in the built environment or what, what challenges there might have been. We did this one exploration, Max, in 2019 in the Portland State Library where we were trying these beacons out. We had beacons up in the library from the American Printing House for the Blind. And folks were using their phones and um, exploring those beacons like and really trying trying them out to see if they worked. So that was a part of our, our mobility matters structure. But then in 2020, literally on a on a dime, it when the world started closing down, the conference was to be held on March 18th. And we decided basically a week and a half in advance that we had to switch the conference to be virtual. So we had transformed all these breakout sessions into Zoom sessions. And what was amazing is that folks still came and they said they really liked the the Zoom format. They, you know, every time people have said, oh, it would be nice if we were together again, if we were on campus to have these conversations and they're right. But we had to flip it really, really quickly. And so from there, it's, it's been, it's been online. Right. Well, the other thing I've really been impressed with is because, you know, you talked about how there aren't a lot of people wanting to go into the field of being an orientation and mobility instructor or a, a teacher of the visually impaired. And I'm just really impressed with what y'all have done as far as creating this hybrid degree program that's allowing people from other parts of the country to get their certifications through you as long as they can arrange a local uh, organization to work with on the practical ex- exercises or experiences that are part of them getting their degree. I just think that's, oh, I just, I can't tell you how impressed I am with y'all doing that. Well, that, you know, it's mother, the mother of necessity, right? Um, need is the mother of necessity or something like that. The mother of invention. The mother of invention. Thank you, Max. Yeah. Um, we, the need for orientation and mobility specialists is everywhere. It's in Alaska. It's in Montana. It's in Idaho. 
these are our, we consider them partner states. And you had talked with Samantha, who's down in California. We have um, students who, I actually had a student who was on a Department of Defense base in Japan who participated in our in our program. And yes, we were able to find a certified orientation and mobility specialist to mentor her in Japan so that she could have that experience. So she, all of my students, they'll come together usually for intensive classes in the summer where we have our cane class. Samantha was a little bit different because we were able to host a small cane class um, in California with an instructor there for her. Um, but because because the need is great, we've been really trying to think, okay, we have these groups of people taking these online classes, but how can we make their experiences really field-based? And the, the answer is it's through a network. It's through a network of professionals who we can contract with or bring into relationship with us in some way so that they can mentor people where they are. Yeah, I, I the, the reason I was, was thinking to bring that up is because of how important it was to Samantha talking about being able to get the degree during COVID. Uh, and we kind of joked about how she was kind of disappointed that the she wasn't able to consider taking a position in Hawaii that is going to be coming up next year or something because of because of COVID. So it's... Uh, but I mean, it's, it just shows how dedicated y'all are to, or how, and how important y'all believe in the, the need for the orientation and mobility instruction. We, we do. And that has also been helped by these um, federal grants that we, that we've gotten, the one that started the program here. We've gotten another one since then um, that Holly wrote called Ideals. And it actually provides funding for 80% of a student's tuition and fees to to study with us. And again, that just enables um, different folks to to take the time and pursue graduate training. You know, I think it goes even farther than that because if this is a master's level program, so these are people who have already received a bachelor's in some field, correct? Absolutely, yes. Okay, so once you receive that bachelor's degree, you pretty much have to go to college on your own dime. You have to come up with grants, loans, or scholarships. And for most people, that means getting a loan. So just think about this, people. Through the help of the scholarship that she's talking about, uh, somebody could get this, this the certification as an O&M instructor, instructor, and they would only have to cover 20% of those costs. Now, just imagine the difference that's going to make in the life of a brand new O&M instructor out there in the workforce to the point where they may actually be able to eat something other than ramen noodles for the first few years. That's right. And many, many folks, as you know, have have children, have families, maybe taking care of older parents or they have a lot going on. Our students are are busy folks. So, yes, the, you, you say something, Max, and that actually gives me some inspiration because we're we're trying to write another grant right now so that we can um the money by the way we don't get rich out of out of getting these grants we still get the same salary whether we write them or not but we see the impact and we we know the need for our partners and and our states and and we we know the need for our students 
Right. And as someone who's written a few unsuccessful grant applications, I can tell y'all it's not easy or fun. No, it's a midnight, midnight oil kind of, kind of existence, you know, eating crackers and, you know, scribbling on a piece of paper and trying to get your energy up to write a coherent sentence. But absolutely, Max, that's, that's the heart and soul of why we do it. Right. And because y'all are, because y'all spend this effort, because you push yourselves to get the additional grant funding, you can, uh, you can give the opportunities for more people to become uh, instructors for the visually impaired, as well as, as well as orientation and mobility instructors. And so those are very important things. And I'm just curious, uh, roughly how many people usually apply for and what is the class size usually like for this program? So we, we have um, different years where, where folks will, um, will come in. Like it, it also sometimes does depend on our funding and sometimes on the timing, but I would say on average uh, like 25 people might apply for a program each year, sometimes 30. Um, We usually have, uh, enough for 16 to be accepted. Some people also get funding from their employers. So I I do want to say, you know, some agencies recognize that the need is so great and they will support their employees for going for training. So it's not all scholarship funding. And then some people, they figure out a way to, to make it work and they, they pay for it a class at a time. So we have had some people fund themselves through the program. Right. And the important thing is this is if you feel like this might be something that you are interested in and would be good at, and, uh, you should definitely go to their website and uh, reach out to them. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining there's probably a form where they can express their interest and have somebody from the university give them a call. Absolutely, Max. I'll send you that for your web for your web notes. There's a a website and we have a colleague named Tracy Williams Murphy who who meets with students who pr- prospective students and answers all their questions. People also reach out to me via email on a regular basis and I'm happy to to chat with them and send them information. My email is ATP the number 5 at pdx.edu. And that has been part of all the Mobility Matters stuff, and it will definitely be part of this uh, post and this episode on the website. So we'll make sure they have that. And I'm sure that uh, the lady you just mentioned can also uh, let them know if if y'all know, because there's, I'm sure there's a lot of, of opportunities out there you aren't aware of, but I would imagine if there are cases where you know of employers who would help with these costs and somebody said, Hey, I work for X employer. Are they on the list? Y'all could probably tell them something about that. We try to help folks as much as they, as much as we can just with ideas. Um, So the veterans administration, the VA system, hospitals are, are hiring orientation and mobility specialists. That's kind of where the profession began. Um, And I do know that the VA hospital does offer scholarships for those who want to work in that system to become orientation and mobility specialists. But the answer is yes. And we also have um, opportunities for folks to um, apply for foundation grants. 
So sometimes there is um, like a $1,000 scholarship or a $2,000 scholarship that uh, folks can apply for. Right. And uh, because of your community that you talked about earlier, uh, there are going to be some people who just not having to cover the cost of relocating to Portland could be a big deal. Exactly. Yeah. I have students in Minnesota. I have students in different places. So a lot of our folks keep their own jobs. They have to, they have to continue to provide for themselves and they take our classes. A lot of times we have our, our class meetings in the evening. Um, and that's to accommodate folks that are, are working during the day or teaching during the day, doing something else. Right. So, you know, it's it's pretty clear to me, and I hope it's clear to y'all out there that there's a big need for people in this uh, in this profession, uh, this uh, uh, this this calling. There's a big need for people to take it up. There are a lot of, of opportunities as far as funding, as far as scheduling, as far as where you take your courses. So really, it's just a matter of is it something that you personally see yourself as as being interested in or capable of. So I hope y'all will visit the website, learn more about the program and reach out to one of the, uh, the ladies at uh, the program at uh, PSU. So we just had mobility matters and, you know, it was a, was a really great conference. A lot of information uh, provided to people and a lot of great exchanges uh, between the panelists at, at the, at that, at that part of the event. So what are some of your thoughts about the one that just took place? And what are some of your plans for next year? So I, this is Amy. I was really Im- impressed with um, just the, the variety of topics on uh, with Anya talking about environmentalism, with folks talking about federal efforts to build more inclusive systems where people with disabilities are a part of the equation, a part of planning, a part of policy. And then the case examples of folks who are really trying to implement creating uh, better designs for bus and transit stations, as well as better designs for the airport. So I I learned a lot through the, the hosting the conference. I learned a lot from our guests. I learned a lot and our students seem to enjoy it as well. So I've had a lot of comments come back in about how much people learned, how much they appreciated the the diversity of the speakers themselves. And then, of course, Mike May talking about wayfinding and the efforts with Intel to improve indoor navigation. Folks were, were really interested in that. And I, I hope it sparks and seeds a lot of ideas. That's the main thing that can come out of these conferences, Max, I think, are the connections that people form with each other. And I hope that it just sparks an idea in them to, to, to try something, to reach out to someone who maybe they wouldn't have reached out to in the past, to have the courage to, to step out there and to find out what's going on and to ask if their clients or students can be a part of the conversation um, so that's what I hope comes out of the conference. And next year, um, it's it's interesting. You know, we, we just concluded this conference. We've had a focus on sustainability, on things that are good for the environment are also good for people with disabilities and beyond. It's good for all of us to have accessible transportation. It actually helps reduce 
too many cars on the road. Um, so that may come up in our, our conference themes next year. I also know that we've been really focused on libraries as spaces where people in their own communities, wherever they are, can have access to, to books and also get connected with others. So that, that'll probably come up in next year's themes. Right. Uh, a couple of things that I have taken from the conversations I've been having is uh, with Mike May and the uh, good maps and the digital mapping of indoor facilities to make them more accessible to the visually impaired was his basically saying, hey, you're the ones using these buildings or not using them because they're not accessible. Reach out to the owners and the property managers for us. Make an introduction. Tell them how great our stuff is and, and ask them to go check us out. So I I thought that was really interesting from Mike. And then from Anya, just learning how much disability and the damages caused by climate change are interconnected because uh, really, if you if you think about it objectively, uh, COVID, which she's living with, is definitely caused by environment by environmental changes. And then you know you look at uh, many of the other chronic diseases that affect people just as drastically as as something that's designated as a disability, and a lot of that is climate change. Exactly. Exactly. So I hope that that conversation, bringing different people together, can um, help them in supporting their work, their their own work. Sometimes it's it's also just uh, acknowledging what people's work is, and and them having the chance to share it with those who may have never considered considered what they're working on. Right, and oftentimes it's just being in a place, whether it's in person or virtual where you can get to know those other people and get past the barriers of your job label or your ethnicity or your disability and get to know those people. And then you just never know where those connections are going to come back around and benefit you at some point in the future. Exactly, Max. We are deeply interconnected. And I think Anya from Norway and um, Jim Elliott, who happened to be from Maryland, we had different people, but being able to share that um, that sense of connection and be less intimidated about uh, reaching out, finding new collaborators. Exactly. We never know where things will lead. Right. Well, I'm a big advocate for a word my friend told a friend gave me uh, interdependence. I've spent uh, a lot of my success has come from building relationships with people without expecting anything to come from them. And uh, at some point, either I that they they can do something to help me, or I could do something to help support or encourage them. So I'm I'm really happy to see that one of the focuses of this conference is building community. Absolutely, and and being mutual mutual members of that community. Exactly. Okay, so one other question occurs to me. I know that you, this just ended yesterday, and you probably are are tired and maybe a little, maybe a little just unfocused right this minute, but is there something that the people listening to this could do for you for the conference next year beyond signing up for the email list and and possibly buying a ticket for, for next year or the downloads from this year? Is there, is there something that would help the conference? Is there a, a speaker you're looking for? Is there a sponsor you're looking for? Is there some, something maybe we can help 
connect with you as a result of you coming on and talking about the event here? Well, I, I do think, Max, that, you know, hosting a conference does have certain expenses with it, just even making sure things are accessible, hiring sign language interpreters, hiring a captionist. So our sponsors really do matter to us. Uh, we did have some sponsors for our event, which enables us to really keep the ticket prices low. In fact, many of the folks who did come yesterday, especially the students, came for either $10 or free. So we we really like to keep the avenues open so that nothing is restricting folks who want to come from coming. Um, so, yes, I think if sponsors want to be a part of creating change, this is a good way that they can um, step out and show their support for inclusive design, really uh, support speakers. We, we do um, some, most of our speakers came with, with no expectation of an honorarium, but sometimes if our speakers don't have uh, other employment or are working independently, we do like to offer them something for, for sharing their time with us. So that would say the, the other thing I would say is just to support inclusion where you are. Whether you, you come to Mobility Matters or not, Mobility Matters is just one cool event. You know, there are many events that engage um, people with disabilities. Reach out wherever you are, wherever you live, and find out about transit options um, that are inclusive. Find out about what's going on in planning at your local airport. Um, and and be, be brave, be assertive, ask questions. Uh, see if there's a place for you to contribute to making the world a little more inclusive. Because by doing that, you're, you're not only benefiting yourself or maybe someone that you love, you're, you're benefiting those that you'll, that you'll never know who needed that service, who needed that ac- access to the world. That is so true and so well said. And I, I just want to say to the, to the to anyone considering sponsoring next year, either the conference or one of the speakers, um, just think about this. You rarely are going to get an opportunity to connect directly with people in this community in a way that you will by sponsoring this conference. So I hope that that will will help people think. You know, um, I'm I'm going to be able to reach an audience that is not really all that easy to uh, to connect with, especially not in large numbers. And I can do it by just sponsoring this conference next year. And I want you to mention the names of the sponsors who were, uh, who were generous enough to take part and, of course, responsible enough to take part this year. So we, we acknowledge Good Maps. What Good Maps did is they helped install um, their system in our Smith Student Union building. So we acknowledge them as a sponsor. Um, another sponsor was the Digital Cities Testbed Center, who offered their support for the conference. The Global Inclusion um, and Diversity Group at Portland State offered support. The American Printing House for the Blind offered support for for the event. So we just we really want to thank thank them for their support. And sometimes support doesn't have to be uh, direct money contributions. It can be through outreach or support of others who want to come. 
So thank you, Max. Oh, you're welcome. And I agree with you. Quite often, uh, providing services, um, leveraging an existing community to spread the word about an event can be just as valuable, if not more so, than a direct cash donation. So definitely well said. And I think we're at the end of our time here. So if you will, if you will just say a few words to close us out, I would really appreciate it. Well, I just love the fact that you you open your um, podcast with a song. <laughs> yeah. And so I would just say I, I love singing and I my parents also sang. And so I just appreciate that. I would say if you ever change your mind <laughs> about leaving, leaving me behind. Oh, bring it to me, bring your sweet loving, bring it on home to me, yeah, yeah. Okay, since this won't be available in video, I want y'all to know I got a big old smile on my face for for two reasons. One, because you sounded really good, but two, because basically more and more people who come on this show are starting to use my approach to life. And so in the last couple of months of episodes, I've had a trombone player and now one of my guests sing. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, you've got oh, a great a voice, Max. You've got oh, a great you. voice. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that, oh yeah, I forgot the, uh, the autistic gentleman from, from the UK who did magic on the show. So, um, I tell you, if I could just get me a TV sponsor, I could be on at nine o'clock every morning, just like Ryan and Kelly or something. Um, but I joke. Uh, I appreciate your compliment about my voice. There was a time when I didn't sing because people made fun of my singing. There was a time after I started singing that I would have never admitted I was good. So I believe I've come a long way and I appreciate, uh, all the people who helped me accept that I am a good singer. And even to the point that I have now written one song and working on the second one. So, uh, but I love it. So, be sure and uh, go ahead and remind people of the website for, for, for the department you work at, and then we'll call it a day. Sure. It's at, at pdx.edu. You can well, find us at pdx.edu. Mm-hmm. Well, that's simpler than I was going to make it. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let me just close this out, y'all. Um, you know, this has been an, an, an incredible week, an unexpected event, an honor for me. You know, as a podcaster, I tell other podcasters all the time that it doesn't matter if people that that the thing they have to forget about is that most people are not going to reach out to you and tell you how good you're doing. Most people are not going to say they love your podcast. Uh, It just doesn't happen as much as it should, because most people are just a little bit nervous about complimenting somebody publicly and even emails. Rarely do I get a direct email, and and that seems to be the same with other podcasters and other bloggers. But this was special because because Sharon uh, Lumley and Amy, you know, they they found my work on the internet. They reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to be a part of this, and I said, absolutely sure. It started out as going to be a couple of interviews, and most of this stuff was going to go live after the conference, and then I had a crazy idea, and to quote my own words on the blog, as if Max has any other kind of ideas. Uh, and we did the five podcasts or five episodes in five days, so you could see most of this before the conference started. It was scary. It was exciting. But most of all, it was a real honor for the people at Portland State University and Mobility Matters to ask 
the blind blogger to be part of the event as a journalist, as a podcaster. So this has been fun. It's been exciting. Now, what y'all need to do is go to their website, sign up for their email list, uh, tell your friends that you think might be good uh, potential candidates to be instructors for the visually impaired or O&M instructors. Spread the word about the program, about the scholarships, about the conference. And let's look forward to an even better next year, hopefully in a next year that will be hybrid because most of the people will be visiting in Portland in person. And the ones, who are, the ones that will show up online, it will just allow the people at Portland State to reach so many more people. So do y'all's part, share the podcast, tell your friends about it, tell your friends about the conference and the speakers. And uh, you can visit my website, theblindblogger.net. That's where you find everything and it'll have all the links you need. So until next time, I really do appreciate your continued support of this podcast and of me personally. Uh, take care now. So since since Amy likes my singing, I'm going to finish with, with a song, but I would have finished with a song anyway. I'm just going to choose a different one because of Amy. So here we go, y'all. Frank and Mama counted on each other. Their one and only weakness made them strong. Mama did the driving for the family. And Frank made a living with a song. Home was just a camp along the highway. A pickup bed was where we bedded down. Don't ever once remember going hungry, but I remember mama cooking on the ground. <laughs>